Okay, if anybody came in late, welcome to Awaken this morning. We are about to embark on a wonderful talk. This is Bree. Everybody say hi, Bree. <laughs> Bree's a member of St. Paul's here, and uh, she's been coming to the church for uh, two and a half years. Yeah, really? Oh, yes. It feels like ages. <laughs> but this is the first kind of talk that she's done like this. Uh, she works with the children and uh, with young adults as well, don't you? Or mm-hmm. you? I used to, not really anymore. Okay, mostly with the kids. And um, But we're just going to pray for her this morning. Okay, so if everybody reach out a hand. Mm. Father God, I just thank you for Bree and her willingness to, to stand here and share some of what you laid on her heart. And God, we pray that you would bless her. We pray that you would use her. And Lord, I thank you that um, through all the experiences that Bree has had, nothing is wasted with you, Lord. And that you use every disappointment that we might have in our lives and you use it for your glory. Amen. All right, well, I just put my Bible down. Oh, here it is. Um, So... The other day, I bought a hair dryer because I've been perpetually sick since September because I have a baby, and I think you just have colds. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe if I blow dry my hair, then I don't have wet hair, because that's what we say in America. You know, if you go outside with wet hair, then you'll catch a cold. I don't, do you say that here? Maybe not? Yeah, you do. Okay. So I thought, well, maybe if I stop going outside with wet hair... Um, I won't have a cold anymore. It hasn't worked. <laughs> I've got a cold. So if I'm like snuffling and coughing and sneezing, you'll know that hair dryers do not solve all of your life's problems. Um, you probably already do that. I am learning. I'm learning. Okay. Anyway, so my name is Bree. I have been here for two and a half years. I am American, um, if you haven't guessed that. Um, I grew up in a little tiny town in Texas. I went to university in Chicago, um, and I've been sort of sticking to big towns um, since 17 years in a tiny town, because it's nicer. Um, Anyways, so my life, what does my life look like today? Probably you guys all have a life that looks really similar to mine. I get up in the morning, I get the baby up, I change his nappy. I do a lot of that, actually, day in and day out, changing nappies, making food, cleaning, cooking. I'm a stay-at-home mom, so those are the sorts of things that I do. There are some really good things about being a stay-at-home mom, though. Just yesterday. So Liam turned one on Thursday. That's That's my baby's name. And then yesterday, he decided to take his first steps. And because I'm a stay-at-home mom, I got to see that. And I was So that, of course, is a really great thing about being a stay-at-home mom. Um, the other really great thing about being a stay-at-home mom is I can sort of arrange my time as I like. And so I've got, I get to do some volunteer stuff and things like that. When I was working in Wimbledon, I wasn't really able to do. But overall, a stay-at-home mom is a lot of cooking and cleaning and tidying and, you know, stain removal from the carpets and these sorts of things. I'm sure you guys all know about that. At the risk of sounding maybe a little bit, well, ungrateful, this is not exactly the life that I had always dreamed of. I'm sure that when you were a teenager, you had hopes and dreams and, you know, big plans. For some of you, it was. You wanted to have children. You wanted to start a family, create a loving household, um, 
I think that's a lot of people's dreams. Um, for me, that wasn't necessarily the case, but I'm going to talk about all that later. Before we, before we, before I talk about myself a lot, <laughs> um, I'd like everyone here to sort of think about what are your hopes and dreams? What is that one thing you think, if I just have this, if I just have this, then everything else will be all right. If I could just have a child, everything else would be all right. If I could just get married, then everything else would be all right. You know, if I could just retire on a desert island in the tropics, or, well, not, you can't really do desert island in the tropics, but anyway, a tropical island, we'll say, where it's beautiful all the time, then everything would be all right. What is that one thing that you think, if I could just have this? What would that be? I'll just give you a couple of minutes to think about it. You can tell your neighbor if you'd like. Okay, 30 seconds remaining. Well, that wasn't exactly 30 seconds, but it seems like everything is getting a little bit quieter. So, all right. As you may have gathered from the little cards that you got, today I'm going to... Oops, whoa, hello. Today I'm going to talk about disappointment. Um, so I'm going to sort of tell my story, um, and then I'm going to sort of tell you what I've learned. Because the truth is, I do not actually deal very well with disappointment. In fact, when I told my husband that I was going to be talking about disappointment, <laughs> he sort of snorted because <laughs> I'm really, really bad at it. I just have sort of come through a really big disappointment in my life. Um, and he suffered. He really, really suffered for about a year because I was such a nasty person for an entire year. I mean, some of you would be like, oh, Bree, she's so sweet. She can never be nasty. You should ask Jonathan because that is not the case. I was really gross. I was just horrible. Um, and even, I, I even stopped coming to church for a little while. I, so, I stopped doing everything. I just, I was so angry. But anyway, more on that later. More on that later. Because there are really two ways to deal with disappointment, are there? I'm sure all of you are going to go into the first case. There's the go-with-the-flow sort of disappointment person. They just sort of go with the flow. They think, oh, that's too bad, but really look at all these good things that are about to happen to me because my life has drastically changed. And then there's the other sort of person, which is me, that says, I can't deal with this. I just can't deal with this. I'm devastated. There is nothing, I can't imagine anything worse happening to me. This is the worst thing. It might be just a small thing, but for you, it's like the worst thing. Like, these are the melodramatic people. So anyway, I, I'm definitely the second case. Um, I, I react negatively to disappointment. I've had a long think about this. It's because I'm a control freak. Um, anybody else a control freak? Maybe. No, I didn't think so. I knew you guys none of you would be. Anyway, the truth is, I just want to hold everything really tightly in my two little hands and just control everyone. My life, my husband's life, I mean, I just want to control everything. So anyways, I have always been a control freak. I've always been really, really strong-willed. When I was two years old, I started to refuse uh, the clothes that my mother picked out for me. I mean, I was two. And she had to take me shopping for my own clothes because I wouldn't wear what she was picking out for me. Um, in 1992, James Dobson wrote a book called The Strong-Willed Child. 
I think my parents were first in line at the bookshop to go and get that. Then when I was 12, apparently I was so stroppy that my mother ran away from home. She was so tired of me. She just ran away and left my brother and I to fend for ourselves. It was only an hour, but she was so, so tired of me that she just left. She just walked out the door. I don't know that my parents were really ever able to sort of rein in my strong will and rein in my briness, my stubbornness, but they were able to sort of help me to direct it in a, a more positive way and help me to understand that I could put my energy into working hard and doing well at school and those sorts of things rather than just being um, a big strop. So that's what I did. And consequently, working hard and doing well at things became really, really important to me because that's the way that I had learned. That was a positive way to put my energy. Does that make sense? I mean, that just became really, really, really important to me. Anyway, so now we're going to jump forward a few years, 12 years. Well, no, let's see six years only, 12 to 18, and I went to university. Um, in America, we do four years. You guys do three here, I think. Well, most programs. Anyway, we do four. Um, first two years, just fine. Really liked it. Third year, I went to France because I was a French degree person, and I had to learn French. That's really important when you are studying French to actually learn it. Um, I had a great year in France. Really, really liked it. And then I came back to university for my fourth year, and um, I really started to lose the plot a little bit because the truth is um, I was about to go out into the big wide world and I hadn't a clue what I was doing. With a French major, you can't really do a lot, honestly. So, um, yeah, I know. They always tell you at university, don't they? Just pick anything you like. Don't do it. Do something that will actually get you a job after. <laughs> Anyways, um, I got really worried. I really, really got worried. Um, and so I did the only thing I knew how to do. And that was, I started working really, really hard. And I got a job, and it was 40 hours a week. And then I had full-time studies. And I was also the president of the French club. And I was teaching English um, once, a night, uh, once a week in the evenings. Um, I just, I really had no spare time at all. I didn't even have spare time to sleep. I was just, every minute of my life was micromanaged. I worked in the mornings from like 6 until 8, then I went to school. I mean, it was just every second of my life had something that I had to be doing. And I thought that doing this would help me to live an anxiety-free life. Um, I, anyway, that didn't work out too well for me. Um, yeah, I, I bet you can imagine that. So anyway, that was sort of my last year of, of university freaking out because I felt like my life was going to end. Um, then I did get a job teaching English in France um, to the most unruly school children I have ever met in my life. That was horrible. I will never do that again. I will never be a teacher. Where's Elizabeth? Yes, go on. <laughs> She's a teacher, and that is a fabulous thing to be doing that I will never do. Never, ever, ever do. Um, so after that horrible year of teaching French to small children, I came back to the States because I'd really been praying. I really wanted to have a call. Have you guys ever sort of prayed for a call and you really wanted to have something like a mission for God? And I really felt like God was, you know, speaking to me and saying, Brie, I'd like you to study theology. I love school. Why not? I love to go to school. I love university. I love learning. I want you to study theology and I want you to teach theology. I was really excited because I finally had a call and I had a place at university to work on a master's degree. And so I went. Um, I loved it. I absolutely loved studying God. It was the best thing ever for me. 
Um, so my brain was just like exploding with happiness. Um, but the problem was, is that my non-academic life was actually going really, really badly. Um, it was that anxiety again, wasn't it? It was just coming on me, and I was dealing with it in a different way. Instead of doing a million and one things like I did at university, I um, actually started micromanaging my diet. And I got really, really thin, and it was bad. <laughs> um, so I, I was, you know, going to this psychologist once a week, and a dietitian once a week, and the eating disorder specialist once a month, and everyone was sort of trying to get me to go better, and... And nothing was really working. I just kept losing weight. Anyways, um, so I think that should have been a clue. I mean, all of you were thinking, Brie, hello. Clearly you had misinterpreted the call somewhere along the way. Like, clearly something is not, was not going well in your life. But I did not want to hear it because I loved studying. So I just plugged my ears and kept on, kept on going on. Um, I was engaged to be married at that point. I'm married to a lovely man called Jonathan. And I was going to get married after my first year of my master's. We sort of started talking about finances, because money's a big thing, isn't it? And we realized that there was absolutely no way at all for me to continue my studies once we got married. There just wasn't going to be enough money. Um, Jonathan would have had to move to the United States, um, and it was the recession, and, you know, there's just a lot of fear. He, di he didn't have a lot of work history. He had a job in London, so that was great, but there was just no way that... I was going to be able to continue my studies, which I felt was a call from God. Um, I think sort of the week that we came to that decision, I just completely stopped eating. And I felt very ill, as you can probably imagine, because I was already quite thin. And I think if having the eating problem hadn't already been a wake-up call, that should have been even more. That I had made this studying thing into something that it shouldn't have been. I had made this studying thing into my God, hadn't I? Well, I had, I'm telling you, I'm not asking you. That's what had happened. Studying had become more important than God. But I was still blind to that, couldn't see it. So I thought, okay, well, that's not a big deal. Um, that's fine, I'll move to London, I'll get a job for a year. Uh, we'll just save up, we, um, and then save all that money, and then I'll go to King's and finish up my theology degree. That's fine, got another plan, let's go. Um, that was fine. I did get a job. I actually met a professor at King's because I worked on a book with him. And then I was filling out my forms. You know, I was getting the application done. And I had another big surprise. This one even bigger than the last surprise. Um, I had fallen pregnant. I think... Okay, I'm going to say this. This is going to sound really terrible, and I'm really sorry. Most people are really happy to fall pregnant, like really, really happy, um, and they're just looking forward to this new life and the little bundle of joy, um, and sort of, I mean, nine months of waiting and, and preparing, and um, for me, I, I'm, and I'm, I'm really, really sorry, because this is going to sound horribly selfish, and it is horribly selfish, but I honestly felt that my life had just ended. I just completely ended. Because I had felt that I was meant to be Brie the Professor. That's what I thought I was. That's how I defined myself. Brie the Professor. And all of a sudden, that goal, I mean, that hope, that dream, that goal, whatever it was, was completely and totally dashed. There was, I mean, we don't have loads and loads of money. We're fine. We, you know, we eat. <laughs> but 
but there was certainly not enough money to raise a child, to go to university, to pay for child care. You know, they're just, that's a lot of money we're talking about. I'm not British. I have to pay, you know, a lot more money than you guys do to go to university. It was just, it was just not going to be possible. All that money that I had saved up to go to university was going to have to be funneled into raising a child and supporting the family um, and all of that. <clears throat> I know that this probably sounds like not that big of a disappointment to you, but I honestly, that is how I had defined myself. I, that's the only way I knew who I was. Does that make sense to you? It's sort of like if you had always dreamed of having a child and then one day you suddenly found out that would never happen. Like, never. It's, you had always seen yourself as a future mother, and all of a sudden you realize, that, I mean, that's just never going to happen for you. That's sort of how I felt. I didn't, I couldn't even understand who I was anymore, let alone understand who this God was, who had called me, who had called me to be a professor, and then taken that away from me. Like, who was this? This is clearly not a loving God. This is clearly like a vindicative, horrible, mean God. And when you don't understand who you are anymore, and when you can't understand who God is anymore, you have absolutely no structure whatsoever to understand the world around you, do you? You just, everything falls down. And that is what disappointment is. You just can't understand anymore. Nothing makes sense. Nothing makes sense. Anyway, it didn't last that long. It was miserable. I was horribly depressed. But we got through it. Um, by the time Liam was born, Liam Toilolistis, born on the 19th of January, 2011, I was in a much better place. The eating was going much better. Um, I wasn't quite so depressed anymore. Um, but in reality, even though things were going well on the outside, I was going to church again. I just want to say thank you, first of all, for all of you who did pray for me during that time, because I, I don't think I would have made it. Um, anyway, so big thanks to all of you who were praying for me. Anyways, <clears throat> back to the story. Um, things were going better. I was going to church again, all of these things. But I just felt exhausted. Like, I had just lived a year of emotional war on the inside of me, and I was just completely battered. I had no energy left. I had no energy left to hope. I had no energy left for anything, really, at all. Um, and it wasn't until this last September, so how old was Liam at that point? Uh, like nine months old. Yeah, <laughs> clearly. Great. I can't even tell you how old Liam was. Anyway, it, it wasn't until then that I could actually open myself up. Um, to healing. And surprisingly, that coincided with me starting a program called WTC um, at the church, which is sort of like a theological training course. I can't stay away. I love it. I'm an addict. Theology, I love it. Ah! <laughs> Anyways, so that coincided with me starting this course, which is really great because the thing that we were learning about in, my, in the course was um, the self, your self-identity in God. Um, and so I just wanted to Look at that passage with you. Now, I think you might be a little bit surprised to hear what passage I'm going to talk about, but it's actually in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. And I'll just read it for you. This is the NIV, just so you know. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. I think this passage totally changed my life. And you're going to be like, oh my gosh, really? The thing is, we are created in the image and the likeness of God. Now what on earth does that mean? You might have heard things like, oh, that means that we're rational like God, that we have a heart to love like God, and all of these things. Well, that's very true. That's all very true, so don't discount it. But I think it's a lot more than that as well. Um, can anybody think of other ways that the word image is used in the Bible? Because it's not, I mean, it's not exactly a hugely common word. No. Um, it's, what do you think, Kari? Idol, exactly. Yeah, it's idol. Um, so... That's what it is. I mean, it's a weird way to say it, and so I'm not going to say it a lot, but it's like we're an idol of God. What does that mean? Hold on before you freak out, because I really did freak out when I first heard that. I was like, what are you talking about? Basically what it means, an idol was considered to be like a repetition of the God, if I can say that, sort of like a representation of the God. And people that worshipped the idol, they really did believe that that bit of wood was in some way, a manifestation of the God. Does that make sense? So it wasn't just a bit of wood that they were worshipping. They really did believe that that was the God, in some sense. So, when God creates us in his image and in his likeness, that means that in some sense, we're part of God's family. In a really, really concrete sense, there's something of God in every single one of us. And that is our primary identity, actually. Our primary identity is not what we do, not what we're becoming, not what we hope to do, not what we have done. But our primary identity is a child of God, as part of the divine family. Does that make sense? That's the first thing that God says when, when he creates people. In verse 28 we see, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, God doesn't just stop at being, because being a child of God means that we have to do some things, doesn't it? So be fruitful and multiply. That's like a creative task, isn't it? Because you're creating. Does that make sense? Yeah? But the thing is, it's a co-creative task, because God is the one that created the whole universe and the whole world. So along with God, with God, we are creating and filling the earth. And along with God, we're ruling over the earth. I think this is where I had gotten it completely wrong. Because I was just set, I was so set to do a mission for God. Super Brie, going to bring theology to the masses, you know. I was so ready to do something for God. And I had forgotten that God does not call us to do something for him. God calls us to do something with him. When we create, we are to create with God. When we rule over the earth, we are to rule over the earth with God. When we do whatever we do during the day, we are to do it with God. We're not to do it for God. God can do it, honestly. He doesn't need us. It's a privilege to be doing it with God, and God gives us that privilege. So anyway, that was sort of two big things that I had really gone wrong on. I had completely missed my self-identity, completely messed up on that. And then I completely messed up on my task. 
Instead of seeing myself as a child of God, I saw myself as a child of theology. I don't really know. And instead of seeing myself as a co-worker with God, I had seen myself as a worker for God. Now, you might be saying, all right, okay, Brie, that's all very complicated and brainy, and to be honest, I'm still really disappointed. I don't feel any different. I mean, I know how I should be thinking about myself. I know that I'm a child of God. I know that I'm a co-worker with God. But in my heart, I still hurt. So I just wanted to tell you a story that has actually really spoken to me in the past few weeks. I've been studying it with the children. So, it's found in Mark 5, um, verse 21 through 43. And it is the story of Jairus' daughter, who was raised from the dead. Um, so if you want to read it, I'm not actually going to read it out loud. I'm just going to tell you how I sort of interpreted it. If you do want to read it, um, that's where it is, 5, 21 through 43. So the story... Jesus had been quite busy lately. Um, He'd been healing a lot of people, casting out a lot of demons. That was sort of his thing, wasn't it? Um, Teaching people about the kingdom of God and about himself. Um, He pulled up onto the the shore. He'd been sailing around back and forth the lake. He pulled up onto the shore, and there were loads of people waiting for him, especially two people. One of them was a lady who had been bleeding for 12 years, and the other one was a guy called Jairus, who was a ruler in the synagogue. So anyway, as soon as they saw Jesus, I'm sure they both made a beeline for him. But um, seeing as the woman had been bleeding for 12 years, she was probably a bit weaker than Jairus. And so Jairus got to Jesus first. And he said, Jesus, Jesus, won't you come to my house and heal my sick daughter? Um, She's about to die, and I know that if you put your hand on her, that she'll be healed. So Jesus said, all right, fine, that's fine. Start going off to Jairus' house. And on the way, the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years reached out and touched Jesus. Um, and at that point, Jesus stops, doesn't, doesn't he? And he looks around and says, who's touched me? All of this goes into this whole thing. Now, I sort of put myself in the place of Jairus, and I thought, Jairus is here waiting on the side, isn't he? He's waiting for Jesus to sort of figure out who's you know, been bleeding and who's touched him and all this. He's waiting on the side, and he's probably thinking, my daughter's really ill. She's going to die. Jesus stopped talking. Jesus, just come to my house, because she's really ill. Like, I'm really impatient. I mean, we don't read about this. In my head, this is how Jairus acts. So it might not be true, but this is just how I sort of think about it. Jairus is probably like, oh, dear, what time is it? She's getting closer and closer to death. Every minute Jesus spends talking to the crowd is one minute closer to death for my daughter. So anyway, it takes the lady who's been bleeding for 12 years a while to come up, because obviously she was quite intimidated by the whole situation, I would be. And then she tells Jesus her story. Um, I've just told you my story, and that lasted about 20 minutes. Um, I presume she was a bit older than me, so her story probably lasted a little bit longer. Um, and so all, I just can imagine Jairus, in his mind, the clock ticking, my daughter, my daughter, my daughter, closer to death. Before Jesus even finished talking to the lady, some people from Jairus' house come, came and said, um, you know, don't bother him anymore. It's too late. Your daughter's dead. That's all. Can you imagine what Jairus felt? I came to you, Jesus, and I asked you to do something for me. And it's too late. And it's too late you've spent too much time, and my daughter's dead. Can you imagine? 
as a parent, as a mother, as a sister. But Jesus just said, don't be afraid. Just believe. And they went to Jairus' house. And you know what happened? You all know the end of the story. Jesus just walked right in there, picked the little girl up by the hand, said, little girl, get up. And she did. And that's the end of the story. And the thing is, it is absolutely never, ever, ever too late for Jesus. Never too late for Jesus. I just want everyone to remember that. It is never too late for hope in Jesus. Anyway, my whole story. The most ironic thing about it is Liam's middle name is Toivo. Do you have any Finnish speakers in here? <laughs> any Finnish speakers? Toivo means hope in Finnish. Um, and it, it's amazing that the thing that I dreaded the most in my life, the thing that I thought had made me hopeless the most in my life, was the thing that actually taught me how to truly hope in God thing that taught me that true hope only lies in God, and that when we pin our hopes on anything else, and we make ourselves into something that we're not, when we see God as something that he's not, or make our work into our idol, that's where our false hope lies, and our true hope can only be found in Jesus. And so I just want you to remember that. Don't ever forget, it is absolutely never, ever, ever too late for hope in Jesus. Anyway, that's all I have to say for today. But I would just really like um, if we could all pray together. Um, I know that some people from the ministry team might be coming up. Um, Sarah's going to do that. Anyway, so if we could all just pray together. Um, Why don't we all stand up?